Hey, welcome to another episode of the Gig Harbor Flycast. And today I have Brian Bennett from Moldy Chum uh, with us again. It's been a while though. We're back. We're we're back. And we thought we'd start uh, we'd start this. Uh, we're recording here on Coronation Day, and so to celebrate the new King of England, we are going to uh, we're going to drink some Travelers uh, rum from Belize, and this is a five year aged rum. So remember, Belize used to be British Honduras, and then they got their independence from. Right. Uh, from uh, the Brits. And yeah. since we have our independence from the Brits, <laughs> we're going to celebrate. It's still, was Long Live the Queen? What do they do for the king? Uh, is, it, is, the king? is it Long Live the King now? Okay. Is that enough for you? Charles? That's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Here's to, uh, yeah. Here's to independence. Yeah. Here's to, here's independence, freedom, and no taxation. Oh, representation. <laughs> you go throw some tea in the sound here when I leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's going on? We've been doing something. We'll say the last time. This isn't really as good as Ooh. you kind of would expect it to be. But it doubles as rubbing alcohol, which is <laughs> not bad. It's actually not bad. But the problem is, is that it's not well, it's good. A, it's a five-year. Right. It tastes like a five-year. Well, and I had some... It's got a little... Nice on the it's got a little nice on the, on the front end. I don't no. know what that is. The, the finish isn't very good. No, it's not. It's, it's kind of like, a little bit spicy, a little hot. Yeah, a little. Yeah, kind of like. Yeah. yeah, I have a couple Cuban rums downstairs, but I couldn't really I couldn't really think of a way to tie that into uh, the whole coronation thing. Yeah, it doesn't work. Right. So. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, this it is what it is. But look at this. I, the glasses. Um, uh, they're the. Uh, crown royal glasses, right? So that was like the little crown on her bottom. So I didn't even really plan that. I pulled them out of the cover and I'm like, oh, well, I'll be like, we'll, we'll do that. So yeah, what's new? My goodness, I got lots of things new. I'm curious about what's new with you two. But one, we just closed on a house out in Forks and amazing. Super stoked on that. Was just showing you the pictures of that. And, um, and so we're excited to have a new base camp for all sorts of fun fishing uh, stuff so we'll be hosting clients out there and beautiful place yeah i i love it out there um it's pretty magical yeah the the surprising thing is is that uh for you know you have the olympic national park which is which is super rad like the whole and it's not just in the middle of the peninsula what people think it is uh the olympic national park you also have the whole coastal area like a lot of the beach is uh, actually in the park. park yep and it's just I was actually talking to someone recently and, and they had been out there and they're like, I just wish there were, there were, you know, that there was more along the coast to do like more development. <laughs> and I kind of just chuckle. I'm like, I'm like there's development across every coast. Yeah. Everywhere. I'm like, let's have, let's just have one stretch where there's not, you know, development. So Jim Pendleton. <laughs> <laughs> like so, last one undeveloped area of the Southern California coast. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. So peninsula. let's hope it stays that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but because there's so much uh, logging um, out there, so much timber company land, you know, there's not as, there's not as many like hiking trails and, you know, there's not as much just like outdoor kind of recreation that you would think. Um, other than beaches and rivers, you know, those yeah, yeah, kind of the the and, deal. Yeah, and that hiking thing is usually you're walking up a river drainage, right? And it's no, why not? Beautiful, and but then you hit the mountains, and it's like straight up. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, that whole that whole trail is really nice. Before I fished, I used to I hiked it a bunch, but now I realize what I was missing before. But yeah, I I haven't really gone up the hoe past the visitor center. I've done like 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 there's a loop. Not there that I've done, but um, but I haven't really hiked back into the park in in any significant distance. Yeah, that's pretty spectacular. We took a helicopter ride on the other side of the the Olympics, um, and land like actually landed on a spot and checked out a bunch of stuff on that side. And it's there is a that's a great idea. I should do that. I should I mean we have the Gig Harbor Fly Shop helicopter. I should. <laughs> <laughs> it was a unique. It was a unique thing. It was yeah. really interesting. We actually dropped on down onto the, I don't know, was it the Dosi or the, one of the rivers, like literally landed on a bar and got yeah. out and walked around. That yeah, was super cool. That 
Yeah. We were actually going towards the Cascades, but it was blowing too hard. So the guy goes, hey, let's go. you mind if we go across? And we literally went all the way across. Flew out, went across at Everett. There were whales. And then we, yeah, we landed. And we landed on this one spot. And you had the full Olympics behind you and all of Seattle on the other side. Like, you can see the sound. And it's wow. pretty spectacular. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, they're, they're Comet been, helicopters. That's cool. I mean, there's been several times in the last couple of years where I have this, this new little saying where... When something like just spectacular happens, whether like we're in the kayaks and we see whales or we're you're, we're on the river and, and you see like snow-capped peaks and uh, and all this other crazy stuff. And it's just like incredibly scenic or, or there's just some some wild experience. I just kind of turn to my, my buddies or my clients and maybe I've even said it to you. And I go, we live here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's clear because it's like you get these experiences and it's it's like, wow, it's, it feels like it should be a place that you visit to go have those experiences but then we live in these places we're super lucky yeah it, and yeah every time you're out on the sound you see something yeah every single time because we, we could live somewhere else we could live somewhere because, that sucks yeah i've always you know so i you know i grew up on the east coast my folks are still there we have a place on the on cape cod and that is a little dark well what's cool about cape cod it's like when you're there like i want to live there because it's a place like i want to live somewhere where i always feel like i'm on vacation <laughs> right like that's one reason you go live somewhere it's like oh yeah okay I'm, you always have that mindset but sure. you, you lose a little bit of that here because it's not quite that way but you're right like and it'll rain you know the classic thing is like it rains for like 30 straight days and you're ready to slit your wrists and you get that one beautiful day and you drive up on a hill and you see the cascades on one side the olympics on the yeah. other and you just kind of go wow. like we live here yeah we're super lucky yeah. yeah super lucky so you've lived in a few places around the country well what was the worst place you've lived? <laughs> um, what was not vacation? <laughs> well, I lived in St. Louis for a while. You didn't like it? Well, that's where I ended up meeting the woman who ended up becoming my wife. So, so there's some redeeming. There was a bonus there. But I lived downtown, and uh, it was it was back then. It was pretty rough. Okay. Um, but they had some good things. But there was no real lifestyle there. Um, so yeah, that was probably the worst place. And then we, we picked up and we moved the company I was working for to Colorado and that's when I ultimately got into fishing, which was, yeah. Yeah. So and Colorado was awesome. Um, Marie, my wife, who I met in St. Louis, she'd, she'd go back there in a minute. She loved it there. To St. Louis or to Colorado? No, no, to Colorado. Colorado, yeah. Um, but too far from the ocean for me. Sure. I, I'm going to live, that St. Louis is even worse than being from the ocean. Like every direction you look, you're like 1500 miles from the ocean it was tough, but um, that's why I love being here. Reminds me of the East Coast a lot. So. I've been living a lot in different places. San Diego, uh, right? Yeah, I was in San Diego, which we were on the. It was uh, for um, our undergrad, and it, we were right on the right on the coast, so yeah. like right right on the water. So it didn't suck. Um, yeah, Coronado. I spent a lot of time in Coronado. Yeah, there's bellfish down there. There are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on Coronado, like there's these sand flats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a different variety of bonefish, I believe, but still a bonefish, though. Yeah, bonefish is bonefish. Corbina. Yeah. Yeah. And California halibut. That's right. Catch them on the surf. Yeah. I never caught one of those. Yeah. I never did the Corbina patrol. There are a lot of guys that I knew that were into the Corbina thing. Yeah. Supposedly, it's hard a fish to catch on the fly as a permit. What? That's what I hear. I want to do that. Well, we should do that. Go down and catch Corbina and. San Diego bonefish. Yeah. That'd be, it'd be fun. Yeah, I had a sailboat in San Diego. I had a sailboat in Chula Vista. Really? Yeah, 25-foot Coronado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I learned something new about you every time. When I moved to St. Louis, I actually kept it for a year, thinking I was ending up going back at some point, yeah. which I never went back. So yeah. ended up selling it. But um, yeah, the gal I was dating, her mom had a boyfriend who was an ex- uh, Admiral in the Navy, who retired, I shouldn't say ex retired. And he had this boat, and he was all he was an older guy. He was in his early eighties and he couldn't manage it anymore. So he asked me if I wanted it. And I had grew up doing a bunch of sailing. I said, Yeah, sure. It had been on the slip in the marina, unmoved for like three years. <laughs> this is a great story. Like the the- lines taking up residence. <laughs> so we go and like it's got like growth on it like you can't believe like barnacles and stuff. yeah everything and so i'm like whoa and so i needed i needed a lot of work but 
And that was when you used to get those free TV circulars, like at the at the grocery store, like at the TV listings and all these ads. And there was a little ad in it that it was like bottom scraping for your boat, fifty bucks. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, call him up. Guy shows up. He kind of looks at it. He jumps in the water. He, he comes back and he goes, "You're kidding me, right?" <laughs> He's like, it's $50 per barnacle. And I go, $50 for the company, $150 for you. And you go, like, right on. Yeah. My dude scraped it all off and we were good to go. <laughs> Do we have to paint it after that, though? Yeah, we pulled it out okay. and did it. And we had, we had to redo the mast. And yeah, we had a bunch of stuff to do, but it, it was a, it was an awesome boat and it was great. But yeah. We, we had friends that had a sailboat in San Diego when we were living there and they wanted us to go out sailing with them. And, um, and we got cut cut off by this this big huge you know power yacht yeah. deal, yeah. and um and in Mission Bay right so oh, they had to drop the sail and try to fire up the engine the motor the outboard and there was like an electrical issues and yeah and so anyways long story short they crashed the boat <laughs> into the rocks and it broke the rudder and and the like the the dude on the big yacht like was just like he saw the whole thing he and he just didn't even care he just stared at us. Well, it says, I mean, technically, they have to give you the right away. Technically, they're supposed to. I don't, he either didn't know or didn't care, but, um, but it was, it was a little bit of an anxious moment. That was, that was the last time I was on a sailboat and that was, you know, so that's been 25 years. I I ran a sailboat. I didn't run it aground, but my stepdad ran a sailboat aground in Boston Harbor when, what, because I grew up sailing and, uh, it, it was a spit, you know, rocky spit that was covered with water, but very sh- shallow. And when he sailed it up, it was it was a boat with a keel, and it hung up, and we couldn't get it off. We tried rocking it, and it was getting out and leaning it over, couldn't do it. And then by the time the tide went out, it was literally laying on its side. Unfortunately, it wasn't super choppy, so it didn't bang, you know, and we put cushions underneath it. And then some other dude showed up and, like, dropped anchor. You guys okay? Ah, we got to wait for the tide. And so... My stepdad rode out and they were partying on the boat and me and my stepbrother were hanging like stuck there. And then the tide came in and it still wouldn't come off. Oh. And so we had to call the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard pulled it off, pulled, ultimately pulled us off. But yeah, we didn't get back into the into Boston until about three o'clock in the morning. Oh my house super sketchy. And we had a friend with us, Oscar, and he was like freaking out. My family, because there's no cell phones or anything. There's no way to get a hold of anybody. He wanted to swim to like, you know, I think that it was uh, Hull. It's a city in Massachusetts. It's like four miles away. He's like, dude, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. There's a kickboard and a lightboard. Anyway, let's talk fishing. Yeah. Well, I, I am super curious about, you know, um, the Cape Cod. Thing. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. I've never fished out there. And um, like, yeah. I, w- I would love to go do that at some point. I've... Um, you know, it's it's such a different fishery than anything that I've really experienced, and I've actually never been to the East Coast. Oh. You know, other than like Florida, and yeah. you know, connecting flights through Florida or sure. whatever. Like, right. yeah, I've never been to the Northeast before. Um, I, I I um I've been to the Midwest so many times that um I've I've paid my time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was due for that. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, in the Northeast, I've never been there. And I've never fished there, and and um. So I'm really intrigued with the striper thing. Sure. And then people talk about bluefish and all this other kind of stuff too. Yeah, but false albacore. False albacore as well, right? So, yep. um, you know, we have a lot of people that listen uh, that uh, fish on foot, Puget Sound type mm-hmm. of stuff. What are some of the similarities between kind of the Northeast fishery and kind of what, what some of uh, the saltwater anglers do around here? So it's super similar in that respect, right? So you, you, there's opportunity to target species from the beach and from boat um and there's advantages to both depending on kind of what you're looking for um you know it for me i mean for game fish i mean there's a lot of you know what i would call forage fish like flounder and black sea bass and stuff that people tend to you know want to harvest for you know food um but for the sport angler you're right it's striped bass it's bluefish and it's in the fall it's false albacore and it's a New England thing and a mid Atlantic, all the way down to mid Atlantic because it's a migration. So all those fish move, um, you know, from Maine, coastal Maine, and I'll give you some more information, even further north than that, you know, all the way down to the Chesapeake Bay and super similar, I think, dynamics all the way. Um, you know, I think that 
kind of low country area, you know, Charleston area, not as much as far as those species that you see kind of in mid-Atlantic and New England, but similar kind of um, habitat, estuary, marsh grass, that kind of stuff. Um, it's, you know, I didn't grow up fishing and I went to school in Salem, Massachusetts. And once I got into fishing and got into fishing for striped bass, I realized, you know, I learned that there was some of the best striped bass fishing on the New England coast, like literally the places I used to ride on a bike by every single day, right? Like, oh my God, really? <laughs> so, um, and it's an, it, it, the interesting thing about striped bass, let's, we can talk striped bass for a minute, is it's, it's one of the great success stories in conservation. Uh, the striped bass populations cratered in the, the, I think it would be the, like the 80s, and there was a bunch of moratoriums, and they rebuilt that stock. And fast forward to now, there's another, you know, the, the, the stock is declining again. And uh, matter of fact, this week, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council just instituted a new slot limit for striped bass so they can reduce the recreational landing so they can rebuild the stock by 2029. Um, okay, I have a couple of quick questions. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so numbers dropped off um, strongly in the 80s. And, oh, terrible. And, and was that be, I'm assuming it was because of um, sport fishing regulations that were too generous, commercial fishing, uh, commercial fishing and um, just environmental issues or um it, I mean, was there any other issues besides those three things? Yeah, one of the other ones is the, you know, the decline of the forage fish. So, you know, Menhaden, you know, all of those fish that live at the lower end of the food chain that striped bass and the entire food chain relies upon, there were issues there as well. Um, but it was, you know, it was classic maximum sustainable harvest mentality. And right. There was bad stock recruitment. and So the bad science they use on the West Coast, they also use on the East Coast, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, the science, the, the debates there. I mean, it's always the same thing, right? Oh, there's plenty of fish. And so, so, so let's take as much as we possibly can before we might possibly impact them. Well, well, and here's the interesting thing. If you look at, I mean, we can talk like last year. So one of the reasons why they just reinstituted, they instituted this new narrower slot limit. Yeah. The slot limit, I think, I believe was 28 to 35. One fish per day, I think. 28 inches. So 35 inches. That's a big fish. Now it's 28 to 31. They just changed it. That's still a big fish. It's still, I mean, still very narrow window. Yeah. So above, you know, those bigger fish, you know, above 35, back when it was a 35 inch top end, you know, those bigger fish are the breeders. I mean, that big lingcod you caught, same thing, right? Those right. bigger fish are the fish that are really driving the biomass. So that's a big change. But last year, the recreational take of striped bass was hugely larger than it was the year before. And the biggest mortality for striped bass is recreational angling. So there's the recreational harvest and then also the mortality, catch and release mortality. Sure. And so if you look at the amount of striped bass that are caught and you put a 10, let's put a 10% striped you know, mortality on it, even on a released fish, it's a lot of dead fish. And so that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a conundrum because there is a commercial fishery for striped bass, but really those, get, those guys have less of an impact overall than the recreational fishery in terms of numbers. Okay. So how did, I'm curious to how do they recovered, uh, recovered stuff from the 80s um there was a moratorium like there was really draconian so no sport fishing no commercial fishing yeah i don't know the exact rules that were but it was it yeah. there was real limits and there were talks of potential moratoriums now that are you know to try to get sure. recovery this the stock isn't as bad as it was when the, when they had that collapse yeah um you know the interesting thing about striped bass is they're managed by the atlantic marine fisheries council so that is uh, state-focused, and there's representatives from each state that sit on the council, and they determine the regulations based on science and um, angler input and those things to put together rules and regulations, which is different. A lot of species, so in state waters, when you get out into the federal waters, the striped bass are managed by the federal government, those you cannot harvest striped bass in federal waters. 
There's no, no right? So this weird, there's a weird little zone like in Block Island, like just the way the federal and the state waters come together where there's kind of this like zone where you're relatively close to state water, but you're technically not allowed to, to take striped bass there because it's technically federal. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of debate about, you know, why aren't striped bass managed under Magnus and Stevens, which is a federal fisheries policy that really has been incredibly successful restoring stocks. Um, but as you can make the same case for salmon and steelhead, right? They spend most of their time in, in, in salt water. Why aren't they, man- why aren't they managed as a saltwater fish as opposed to, uh, you know, the, the freshwater fish, but that's a, that's a real that's a really good question. It's a, we've been we've been we've been talking about it quite a bit. Like why isn't Magnuson? So that's another that could be another entire podcast. So so strike. So the good news is they made the a, a real effort to put in some um, new regs to, to rebuild the stock by 2029, which is what the the council rules say they had to do. Um, but they've been kicking the can down the road quite a bit. And there was a couple of groups out there, you know, ASGA, the American uh, Saltwater uh, Guides Association, put together a letter and really drove. I mean, I saw the letter, every brand and fly and conventional, hundreds and hundreds of anglers. I mean, they were really, um, it was really good to see that, you know, they made the right choice. Um, and I'll be out there into June. Um, you know, I do an annual striper camp. I haven't been for like three years because of pandemic, you know, go to my folks' place. And I, I spend time on the boat with friends and, but the other thing I love to do, and this gets back to your initial question is I love chasing striped bass on the flats on foot. Um, and on the Cape, you know, I can't, I don't, you know, I'm not super familiar with, you know, the Connecticut and Rhode Island as opportunities there to do that as well. But on the Cape Cod Bay side, which is where my folks are, the largest sand flat in North America is on that, is, is on Cape Cod Bay and it runs pretty much from sandwich all the way up to Wellfleet. And it's, it's enormous. This is super interesting because when I, the, the picture that I have in my mind from the, from, you know, photos I've seen on fly fishing magazine covers or, or ads or whatever, you know, striper fishing, these guys on like these rock jetties with like gnarly spiked boots, like with surf crashing, like, and you're like, gosh, the guy's going to die and he's trying to cast, you know, there's a lot of that. Cause that, I mean, that's what I, I don't think of a big sand flat, you know, no, Mo- you know, Montauk, you know, those, those surf guys, you know, the guys that love fishing for him in the surf, I mean, that's a surf casting guys. That's a nut. Those guys are, I mean, they're, they're amazing. You know, and there's guys that were doing it, like putting on wetsuits and stuff and really taking it to the extreme. You know, I fished for striped bass off the rocks in Maine before, and it's really good where you've got, you know, crashing surf and fish in there. But there's also, you know, I've um, got a good friend that runs a little brand out of Maine called 12 Weight, and he's uh, lives nearby to a place called Higgins Beach, and it is a, a great place to surf. And so, you know, if it's a surf beach, it's got to be that kind. It's, it, it's really great striped bass surf fishing, mm. you know, because it's sand. Um and the cool thing, and it took me a long time to figure it out at my parents' place. Like I'd go down, um, and you'd wait out, and you you see them. I mean, they're ever they're, they're cruising the flats, and literally almost swimming like between your legs. And wow, you know, the normal thing was you think, oh, I'm going to throw a clouser, you know, like yeah. bait fish patterns, and you'd kind of strip, and you'd catch, you know, I'd catch a schoolie, a couple fish, but. You'd watch them swim around the fly and just like, what's going on? Like what? And it'd be sand, little, little balls of sand eels. You'd throw a sand eel and like, no, no, just no, not even a look, right? Like what's going on? So there's a guy, his name's uh, Chris Cacorda. I mean, he's on Instagram, he's amazing fly tire. And he is a guide. He's a flats guide on the Cape. He used to work at a, a retailer there called um, Goose Hummock. Um, did, did two retail stores and I went in they had this little satellite operation I wanted to talk to Chris and like hey man what's going on I was like Jesus you know I'm fishing the flat like, I don't know, just can't seem to figure it out he goes come on out to my car right. and the, the, pops the trunk yeah literally yeah, moves the bag of cocaine out of the way <laughs> lifts up the raincoat yeah. and so I got so he opens it up and he has this this fly and he called it the crispy critter and he goes here take a couple of these so I'm like, okay. So, um, so I go out, I go down to the flats, do my thing. And 
I'm having a frustrating morning. The sun's coming up. It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful, warm water. And there's fish all over the place, and I can't get them to do anything. And so I, I go, oh, you know, I got that crispy critter fly, you know? And so I tie it on, and I like, and I'm, I'm kind of pissed, right? Because I'm just like, God damn it. Like, tie it on, like, cast out, you know? I'm like kind of looking, and I'm not like really paying attention. I just cast it out. I'm like, Jesus, you know, another day. You're describing how I usually fish. <laughs> and literally, the rod almost gets ripped out of my hand. Oh, nice. And it's like, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, awesome. And it was, it was a nice fish. I'm like, okay, wow. It's like, well, that worked. Let's try it again. So, And I think, I don't know if I didn't move it the second time, but I think I may have like, like just little bitty twitches and same thing. And like for an hour, I had just lights out. Wow striped bass like it was incredible and what i soon realized was that they're not eating sand eels they're not eating bait fish they're hoovering up crabs off the bottom is what they're doing on those flats yeah so are you fishing like a sinking line so good so it's really funny right so that was the same thing i always fished intermediate i I went into the there was another black eel outfitters they're closed now um but I went in there and I was like, oh man, it was great. He's like, dude, you got to fish full sink because you want it laying on the bottom. Because yeah. they'll even spook the line, even the intermediate line coming up off the bottom, sure. spook them. So I do fish a full sinking line. Yeah. I do. And, and you don't have to worry about getting hung up because it's just sand. Yeah. It's all, yeah. It's yeah. like, it's, yeah, it's perfect. And um, what's super cool is that, um, you know, I, I, I circle back to Chris, you know, I could used up a mall and I had some friends tie him up. And I was like, dude, can you remind me of that pattern? Because I don't fish that more. He only fishes true crab patterns, right? This thing looks like it, it's not, it's a really interesting. It could be a worm. It could be a little crab. Um, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, when fish are hungry, you know, they'll eat it. It doesn't matter. They'll eat anything. But the, the it's really all about crab patterns. Like you could say, you could fish a Flexico crab for striped bass mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. Um, so I just need to buy a plane ticket and bring my permit box and I'm good. Pretty much. Yeah. It's super cool. Um, and it's really like what, what also took a little bit of time. Like I have my spots, you know, where I like, I like to be, I know, you know, there's a, there's a lot of sandbars that kind of run not only parallel to the beach, but out from the beach. So when you see that at low tide, you you know, so I like fish kind of come through the trough. They do. And you're looking for incoming. I like to fish the incoming tide mostly. Um, there was a guy, we, the last time I fished there, I was there for the cheeky schoolie tournament. I think it was last year, actually. So that was the last time I, was, I fished a little bit. And uh, there was a guy there and he's like, sees us. There's a bunch of us there because like Sasha from Keepfish Whip, a bunch of other folks were all fishing that beach. As a matter of fact, the cheeky schoolie winners came out of my parents' beach. And uh, so he comes by, he goes, oh, showing everybody my spot, right? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm looking at his fly, and he's got, like, literally, it's like a little round crab body with nothing else, like no arms, nothing. And I'm like, what? and so it's a mini flounder, it's a crab, okay. it's a bunch of, like, they'll eat little flounder. Yeah, yeah. So, um and we got into the debate, you know, then we go, okay, so are you stripping or like sitting or whatever? He's, he was a stripper, but I just like barely move it and it works. Okay. So super fun. Um, and then of course in the boat, you know, the, the Bayside and the Cape Cod, um, you know, Vineyard Sound, which is on, the, you know, so if you look at the arm like this, my parents are right here. And that sand flap runs from basically here all the way to here. But there's all these estuaries that come in. Like you can't walk the whole thing, but I've probably got three miles of sand flat. Wow. Um, and what I really like doing too is there's these the creeks that come in. So there's Tidal Creeks, Quiver Creek, um, Payne's Creek. Those are really good places to fish as well because the bait flushes out and you know, there's usually a little wave break out there, and you'll always see a bunch of guys standing there. The one thing I would say about fishing the flats is it can be really dangerous. And the reason, if you don't know, and where I fish is not too bad because I'm familiar with it and I don't get myself in positions where the tide can come in because you can walk out like way out. Okay. And when that tide comes in, it comes in behind you. And if you're not careful, you can you can get stuck out there. Um, my beach, not so much. The Paints Creek one, 
it, it can be tricky. Um, and that's why it's helpful, you know, to sometimes go with a guide or be in a place and be super careful watching the tide and where it comes in. But, um, so, and then the, the other side, you know, boat fishing on the bay side is really cool. Um, you know, you get blitzes and bait and striped bass. What's really cool on the, the vineyard sound side is there's, it's relatively shallow water in places. There's rips out there. And so when that tide is running, I mean, the rips, like you're going from, you know, depth to, you know, feet deep. And so you get really good wave action. And what you'll do is you'll set the boat up, you know, just above and you cast big sink line, big squid flies and just swing it in and strip out. And it's super fun and big, big, big fish out there in that role. Yeah. So that's fun. Um, and then off like Monomoy, so Monomoy kind of tails off of the elbow here. You know, I fished the backside of Monomoy and you think you were in the Bahamas. That was those kind of flats. And it's you, it's all visual. Um, lots of bluefish there too. Um, the blue fishing hasn't been as good, um, as it had been, you know, I, I think they've, they've rebounded quite a bit. Um, you know, normally when you're fishing, that kind of shallow flat stuff and you see a cruising fish coming by, you can tell what's a striped bass and what's a bluefish based on where they are in the water column. Okay. Bluefish tend to hold up a little bit higher and striped bass tend to be a little bit lower. I think they're working that bottom more where bluefish are kind of, they'll, you know, yellow eyed devils, man, they'll hit anything. You know, probably one of the most, I mean, arguably one of the most underrated game fish out there. I'm not sure why, um, but they are, yeah, they, they fight like crazy. You know, they have different designations based on their size. You know, I think a, you know, gator bluefish, which is a big one. And they, they will, if they call a gator, they will put a, they will put a major bend in your wow. And what we do oftentimes is when there's bluefish around and blitzing, what you do is you've got a light tackle rod with a bear plug. Sure. And you tease them in and throw it. And they're, they're toothy critters too, right? Yeah. You got to run, you got to run a uh, wire. Yeah, sure. Uh, so have you done any, uh, striper fishing either in like California, South I have Delta. No, I have. Oh, you have. Okay. In the Delta. Yeah. And how's it compare? Uh, it's completely, it's, it's a totally different game. Totally different game. And you know, the thing, yeah. And that's the Delta. I mean, you know, it's a completely somewhat artificial place. Right. right. Um, and it's super fun and they, you know, strike, they fight kind of like striped bass, but they, I, it, it wasn't the same vibe for sure. Okay. Um, you know, the striped bass and freshwater, right? And yeah. Bases and- well, now I was also going to ask about, um, you know, if you have fish for them in reservoirs, I mean, like even down, uh, Arizona, right? I mean, there's like, yeah, you know, striped bass or wipers or, you know, they have the, yeah, yeah. the cross, you know, the thing about, you know, people often ask like, well, if you had one day left, like, and you could kept, you, you were going to fish anywhere, where would it, what would you go after? Right. And for me, it's striped bass. And there's a lot of reasons why. When it's, you know, home and family and all of that. Um, you know, striped bass, they, you know, they're super strong. They don't do, it's like redfish, right? They don't, they'll taste, they'll chase a popper, you know, at the right time. And, but, you know, they don't jump, right? They're not, you know, it's not that, it's not an acrobatic fish. It's a really strong fish. And, um, but it's the whole experience, you know, you get done, you go to, you know, the uh, Sesawit, you know, marina and you have a lobster roll and an Narragansett when you're done. Right? Okay. Yeah, it's it's that. I was sold. <laughs> yeah, it's that whole thing. And so that's, you know, in you know, June, you know, May, June, you know, really good, you know, early July for striped bass when the heat of the summer comes, gets changes up a little bit different game. And then in the fall, you know, false albacore up there, that is really really fun um you know it's uh it, you know it's a lot of you know you see them come in it's a, you know, a lot of people run and gun but you know, a little you know they're a little tuna and without it's it, that's primarily boat fishing though right you don't even get them from the beach really yeah vineyards a real popular spot i mean you have the vineyard your master's vineyard stripers Der- striper derby which is uh stripers uh bluefish false albacore and um What's the other fish that's not, it's not a false album core. It's another little tuna. I can't remember what it's called now. It escapes me at the at the moment. But like yeah. Skipjack? Yeah, it's similar to that. It'll come to me in a minute. Okay, but Bonita. Bonita. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
but they catch them like huge beach thing there. Uh, and you'll get false albacore running the beach. Um, what's cool about, you know, you fish for false albacore, you know, Harker's down in Carolina is a big, you know, false albacore place. A little bit different game. The water temperature needs to hit a certain temperature on the Cape for them to kind of move in. And when they do, they're around. And what's cool is you, you catch them in places where they they run, right? It's not deep. So they don't, you know, my experience with deeper, you know, false albies, you know, they tend to, they'll, they'll kind of circle the boat and then they sound. Whereas when you catch them on flats in shallow water, yeah, they, just go. they just, they go. And they are really strong and super fun. You know, the uh, interesting thing is, again, mentioned the ASGA. Those guys, you know, there's no real management of false albacore. Um, they don't, you know, there's a lot of trips for them. It's not really a fish that you eat. Um, I think it can be prepared in a way that you can eat it. But, you know, the joke is if you want to eat a false albacore, you know, get a cedar plank, put it on the barbecue, and then throw out the fish and eat the plank. Right? So um, they're not super tasty. So it's really a recreational fish primarily. But, you know, they don't know if the fish I caught off of, you know, Chatham is the same fish that's popping up down in, you know, off of Harker's. You know, they've got tons of false albacore in Florida and the Gulf. I mean, they're, they're really considered a, more or less a trash fish down there. So, um, yeah, it's really, really fun. And back to bluefish, one thing, too. The other thing, people say bluefish is you know, not really good eating. Yeah, that's not true. It's really, um, you know, there's a, there's a recipe... For anybody out there that you, you can look it up, it's called a Montauk burger. And the Field and Stream did it years ago, and it's like fresh bluefish has to be fresh. Um, you literally kind of make a fish cake out of it with you know old bay seasoning and some saltines and a little bit of mayonnaise, hold it all together. You grill it. It's the best thing you've ever had. It's like incredibly good. Um, but it's like you know any kind of fish that is kind of dark and oily, you bleed it out. As good as the sandwich I made for you today, that good? An albacore with that sandwich was super good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, New England, it's it's super special, and you know the cheeky tournament's coming up here in a couple of weeks, which is I think arguably the largest fly fishing tournament in the world. Really, they're gonna have a couple hundred anglers and have a big event, and everybody gets together, and it's called the Schoolie Tournament because normally, what's interesting at this time of the year, generally. Most of what's around is just smaller fish, right? And the big fish move in as the wet water warms. Um, there's a there's a regional magazine called On the Water, and they put out a YouTube video that sh that shows the migration. So it's like, hey, here's where the 40 inch fish are showing up. Here's where and it, it maps the whole thing all the way up. And um, so, but the bigger fish are coming earlier and earlier, and that's a that's a function of climate change. And what's interesting about that is. We, we have a good friend, Kyle Schaefer, who uh, runs Soulfly. He, he guides out of Maine, flats, flats boat out of Maine. He also owns a lodge in the Berry Islands of the Bahamas called Soulfly, Soulfly Lodge there. He is actually setting up a flats guiding operation for striped bass in Newfoundland. Because huh. because of warming water, those fish are migrating further and further north. Is there their spawn timing? Is that changing as well, well I mean, I, or just I, distribution? I, I think it's more distribution. Yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing there was a big blow up about you know a lot of people were really concerned in those the Atlantic salmon rivers where you're starting to see a lot more striped bass and predation on Atlantic salmon. Um, that seems to have died down quite a bit. Um, yeah, they had the same issue. You know, people were blaming striped bass for the decline of salmon in the Delta because those fish are clearly foraging on, you know, smaller fish. But, yeah, um, you know, I think those fish have kind of always been up there. There's always been striped bass kind of up in the St. Lawrence, but there's definitely a change happening okay. in that respect. Like I was just, you know, I was talking to, I mean, you know, you've seen tarpon being caught off of docks in North Carolina, um, you know, Chesapeake Bay areas becoming a really robust red fishery all of a sudden, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's just shifting stocks because what? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we make the joke around here that maybe people will have like yellowfin tuna in Puget Sound someday or something. Yeah. I've always wondered why we don't have, I, we talked about this earlier today before we got on the, the pod. It was like, why don't we have striped bass here? Yeah. Kind yeah of... I would love to, if there's anyone out there that uh, would, uh, 
you know, maybe a biologist or something like that. Do you have any idea of why there's not uh, more stripers? Because the water uh, temps are are favorable. Um, yeah, I don't know if it gets warm enough. I don't know if it gets warm enough in the in the, in the summer period, right? Yeah, I don't know. Because those fish all leave mass. I mean, a few holdover fish even in Maine and the rivers, but generally they you know they're in, they go in. It's not those fish migrate. They go down with the water. So my hunch is it's probably the water's just too cold year round. Mm. Yeah, especially offshore here. Right? Well, the offshore temp, yeah, super cold, right? Yeah, and, um, but they get fish off of California. People fish for stripers on the beach down in the Bay Area. Oh, tons! I I was talking with a um, an individual on our recent trip down to Hobosh, and um, gosh, where does he live? Maybe like Santa Cruz area or something like that. And um, he catches tons of stripers. Yeah, on the fly, yeah. like yeah, you know, not not anything giant, but like yeah, but like nice fish. You yeah, know? yeah. So I don't know. I'm really intrigued by stripers. I think I've I've talked about that on the on in one of our vlogs recently because I had a couple people mention it. But um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've only caught them on on gear before. I've never caught one on the fly, so it's it's on the list of yeah. stuff I want to catch. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, I I've got a I'm actually I'm leaving for Florida on Tuesday, and I have a, a old a old guy that I, you know started fishing with on the Cape. He guided me. His name's Warren Marshall. He's an he was an Orvis guy for a long time, and um, I had a, another guy that I fished with, and he couldn't guide me, and so he hooked me up with Warren, and I've fished with Warren ever since. And Warren has actually has a place down, and I think in Little Torch in the Keys, and he's down there right now. So, and I've never, I haven't been down and done the, the Florida tarpon thing. You know, he's always told me to come down. So I'm going to go down and stay with another friend and I'll see him down there. But, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, I you know, fish with Warren. There's a, you know, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute there. And I think it's outside of Falmouth or Chatham. I can't remember. It's, you know, it's the big place. And there's a really great little rip to fish there. And you're fishing squid at that time of the year. And, like you'll see squid like literally jumping out of the water and you see the striped bass like coming up and it's it's super fun yeah so i mean uh presentation wise with stripers what's kind of like the overlap with cutthroat fishing like uh, you know like fishing cutthroat like how has how has striper fishing this is same yeah yeah same dynamic varying retrieves you know some people do the two-handed thing i never do that you know false albacore same thing sometimes need to get that fly moving really, really fast. But I always found that, you know, single-handed stripping is fine. But, you know, if you're fishing, you know, when you're, you're you know, throwing those, you know, fishing that blue water, you know, squid or big clousers or whatever, it's classic. Boom, boom, boom. is just wait. I get, well, I guess one of the differences I would assume would be that you probably catch stripers in more variety of water depth than... Uh, been cutthroat since cutthroat are so shoreline oriented. For sure. Um, for sure. You know, that would probably be one of the. Yeah. And I think what those, we were trying to figure that out. Like we would go out and fishing on the boat on the base, on the base side, there's a shoal off of Wellfleet. It's called Billingsgate Shoal. And it extends out. And it's kind of part of that whole flat system. You go out and there's boo boo, you know, boom, they're all over. Like you tend to like get you know, cast into a bunch of blitzing fish and just you're catching them on. You know, if you're not catching one on a cast, you're like, what? Like, it died of fun. Um, but then it'll just stop, right? It just dies out. So then what do you do? You head to the flats and start looking for cruising fish. And so the theory was is that those fish are kind of, you know, they're out there hitting the bait, gorging themselves, and then they kind of just cruise the flats, you know, timing-wise, you know, when they're in there, when they're not. But so, yeah, it, it's all. And you catch them in rivers. Like, I went on a striper trip and fished the Kennebec River and caught a bunch of striped bass in there. Mm. You know, that's the one thing about, I think, you know, they talk about striped bass as being kind of the working man's fish in some respect. You can catch them in all different kinds of places. You can catch them in rivers, you can catch them in estuaries, you catch them in deep water, you catch them on the flats. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably, you think about it, you know, fishing from Boston, you know, Maine and Newfoundland now all the way down to the mid-Atlantic. I mean, it's a massive fishery. It is. Right? Well, um, cutthroat would be a larger fishery except that it so much of it is inaccessible true right you know i mean puget sound cutthroat it, it's not the only that's not the extent of their range exactly <laughs> yeah if you look at it, it's probably one of the largest anadromous fish runs out there when you consider it like if you look at pure yeah. powers, right 
yeah. from here all the way up to Alaska. I, I've never heard of anyone like going to Southeast Alaska for, you know, don't get, fish for cutthroat. And people do it on, in BC though. Yeah. On, so, on the island. I, I've seen really yeah. big cutty caught on, on the island. Oh yeah. For sure. But I've yeah. always been curious about that, about, um, you know, are people fishing? Um, anyway, what, what I should do is I should reach out to David who used to work for us and is now up on Prince of Wales Island and he's guiding up there and, yeah, sure. um, and just kind of pick his brain and, you know, and, I, but I, I think about that, I'm like, but what, what I, you know, I love cutthroat, but I don't, I don't know if I would travel to fish to, to, go, to go fish for a cutthroat, you know I mean? Yeah. And, and maybe they're a little bit bigger. I mean, there is like, some cutthroat with some potential steelhead bycatch potentially, but yeah. that might work. What's interesting, one thing about striped bass, though, is the, the flat wing fly. Yeah. That's a really effective, the flat wings are very effective for striped bass. I, flat wings are very effective for, for cutthroats, and I tied up a couple of, that I want to give you before we leave. Oh, cool. they, yeah, cool. I got some really cool ones that I've been working on. Yeah. Probably, I'm guessing there'll be a, uh, a feature in the bins at the shop in the future, but there's... Cool. Still some process to be yeah. done with those. Yeah. But um yeah. yeah. But yeah, so speaking of cutthroat, you you love the cutthroat fish and you've you've told me before that, you know, that in Washington at least that cutthroat might be your favorite. I think it is, you know, it's something about yeah, there's something about it where you know it's so accessible and you know, if you, when you you get to do it frequently enough, it like really fulfills that hurt, you know, that itch and you know, there's a lot of different ways to catch them too. And, you know, those times when it's visual and clear water and, you know, it's just, it's on, it's super fun. And, and when they're, when it's not, it's always, a, you know, kind of a treasure hunt, right? You're looking and changing things up. Yeah. And they're, they're just there's something about them, right? They're just super feisty and they're just, you know, inch for inch. It's for inch. They've got to be the some of the toughest little fish out there, right? Right. And, right. Uh, so yeah, I love it. I, um, yeah, we've gone out and kayak fish a few times uh, for them. Yep. And um, but I think w- uh, when you typically fish for them, you're usually uh, know, boat fishing. Yeah. 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 A couple of friends with boats, and that's the best way. To, it's so yeah. Yeah, having friends with boats, the best kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we've been known to, you know, people like look at the Instagram feeds like, do you guys fish or just drink the whole time, right? <laughs> so, you know, Earl Harper. Can't it be both? Yeah, we do. Yeah, we, yeah, it's a cigar, <laughs> usually a cigar involved, and Michelada's in the morning, and yeah, super fun. It's just, you know, that's part of it, right? The fishing is almost secondary in some cases, right? Um, but yeah, and then Rich Sims, who, you know, you know well, one of the founders of the Wild Sea Lake Coalition. He's got a he's got a really sweet Montauk whaler that we get to get out in, and it's the perfect, really perfect sound boat for that kind of stuff. Yeah, and Captain Keith, and yeah, it's and the other thing about seeing cutthroat fishing, yeah, I was like, here we are telling people how great it is. It's like it's not you know, generally you can go out there and you might not see another person fishing for him, right at all. Although the last time I went out fished the beach, I walked down. It was it you know just uh, where the power lines are, you know. Oh, I can't remember where it is over. Near Case and like there, I walked down and that Victor. Yeah, and there's Leland. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, dude, how was he fishing? Yeah, no, he was just standing there, like looking. And I, I've, I've seen him several times on the beach, and I've never seen him. Yeah, fishing. just he's, taking a nap or having a little cigar. Yeah, he's eating, or or drinking scotch. Yeah, yeah I go a lot of. I will smell the cigar before I see him, yeah. or I'll be like, oh, somebody's taking a nap on the log over there. Oh, that's Leland. Hey, Leland, how long you been here? And he goes, pulls up his guy, goes, about that long. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's good, man. Yeah, we sat there and watched fish rising, like slashing and stuff, but well out of casting range. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to pinks this fall. That'll be this summer. That uh, I saw a report saying that there looked to be a little bit more than four million fish yeah, estimated. That should be enough. So, you know, so in reality, it means that it's probably going to be anywhere between one million and eight million. Right. <laughs> anywhere with that. So you'll be able to get them out in Nia Bay probably coming in. Yeah, we um right. Yeah, I you know, we did a Nia Bay trip two years ago mm-hmm. and that would have been a pink year. Yep. And um I don't think we 
I'm trying to remember. I don't think we caught any pinks that year out there. Um, we caught we caught some coho, but not many. Yeah, it wasn't like the coho last year. Oh, that was fun, man! My goodness, super My fun. Goodness. Well, you had that epic. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah an August trip. Last this year in August, I went on the September trip, and we still got a couple. So I mean, and but those September fish were just spectacular. They were strong. That little that little cove there, that wave rolling in, cruising through there. That was a yeah. That you, we talked about this earlier, like the the experience of Pacific Northwest and how lucky we are here. Right. That that place is like the end of the earth, right? Yeah. Like it, you know the. Yeah. If you haven't done the drive, um, you got to do this drive where you you know out past CQ, you go west. So this is Olympic Peninsula, the top of the north side of the peninsula. So you're like looking across the water at at Vancouver Island. Uh, So if you know where Port Angeles is. To the west of that, you can drive out the coast, and once you get past CQ, uh, you start kind of the the road kind of curves back towards the coastline, and you just go along the beach uh, for miles and miles and miles, all the way out to Nia Bay to the Indian Reservation that's out there, and it is spectacular. There's so many little places you can pull off, and um, you know, we were talking about this, my family, um, you know, having the place out in Forks now, we're like. Um, yeah. yeah, if it's not rented out, let's, dr- let's drive up there and let's, let's go look for whales, Absolutely. you know, because it, yeah, it doesn't take long. You see them there. I mean, they're, no, it's crazy. When oh. we, we did that trip in September, we were rolling the kayaks down to the put in and there was like, there was like three whales, like 50 yards offshore, maybe right there. Yeah. I was like, Oh, whoa. Yeah. No, that was, <laughs> yeah, that was super cool. I wish I, I wish I had stuck a GoPro in the water, to, yeah, but yeah. I didn't want it because I was too scared to <laughs> I don't even want to know what's down there, right? So we were. I was showing Brian a video um, that our one of our guides, Aaron, filmed um, two months ago, where a juvenile orca came like right at them and came up. Certainly, yeah. It they didn't even know it was coming. It just surfaced. Surfaced. They saw it, but then it came up literally at them, like thirty feet away, maybe. And then it like goes under under the kayaks, and they see its eye as it (laughs) as it turns. It goes. I mean. Yeah, it, yeah, TikTok, man. It, it's yeah, it'd be super cool to to experience. I think. Yeah, as long as they don't. Yeah, they're. they're but they know you're there. They're not going to come up on underneath you, probably. But yeah, yeah, never know. <laughs> never know. All right. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, Brian's got to hit the road. But thanks for joining us on this episode of the Gig Harbor Flycast. We'll link to Brian's stuff down below. You should follow him on Instagram please. and YouTube, and check out his website, Moldy Chum. Uh, recently for May the 4th for Star Wars Day, Brian had the funniest Instagram posts ever. So, uh, so yeah, it, you got to check those things out. It's great. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. We'll have you back again. Yeah, we'll do it. I love it. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it.